0: you know, Michael said terrible things about Angel and uh, and the things that Michael said were not true. You know, he was he was like a lot of club kids. He was this alienated young man who was looking for a community and he was hoping to find that in the club kids. And to some degree he did find it, but he also got mixed up in drug dealing and in all this negativity and it, you know, and it led to his death. Unfortunately,
1: Money, success, fame, glamour. Money, success, fame,
2: glamour. I'm James St. James, this is Night Fever, a celebration of New York nightlife in the 70s, 80s, 90s and beyond. I am joined as always by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. We are celebrating the party monsters, the club kids, the disco dollies, the night crawlers, the denizens of the dark, the children of the night, the architects of the New York club scene. And let's just sort of dive right into it. We have with us today a true icon of the era. He is uh, an OC, original club kid. He is a journalist. He is the author of the books, The Darkest Tunnel. 69 Hangovers, uh, Dressing the Monster, in which you write about dressing Michael Eilig, the Club Kid Killer. You were a, uh, a long-time roommate of Michael Eilig's. You wrote the text for the photo book of Alexis de Biasio's pictures, Fabulosity, right? What else am I forgetting?
0: Well, I wrote the foreword for Michael Pizzacherly's Nightbirds, also.
2: There you go, okay. You are also a viral sensation on The Pew, uh, your YouTube talk show with Michael Eiligan. We're going to talk a lot about that. Or a Lightning Rod, one of the other. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are born and raised in Sacramento, right? That's correct. And then you went to the University of Pennsylvania or Pennsylvania
0: State? No, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And that was in, what, the early, mid-80s? I graduated in 1984. I was there for four years from 1980 to 84.
2: And during that time, you would sneak out and you would go to the clubs in Philly,
0: right? Definitely. uh, What few clubs there were, but it was actually a very fun time in Philly, so I had a blast. And you already had your your Ernie Glam look
2: down pat, right? You, You came out fully formed.
0: Well, I would say that I workshopped the Ernie Glam look In the nightclubs of Philadelphia.
2: And then you hit the New York club scene. And before the club kids, you were around during Danceteria
0: area Palladium, right? Yes, I actually went to, I remember the, some of the first clubs that I went to when I came to New York were Crisco Disco, (laughs) Pyramid Club, and uh, Area, you know, so yeah. Did you participate at Crisco Disco? Are there some salacious stories you want to share with us? Well, Crisco Disco was not as sleazy as it sounds uh, because, I mean, yes, there were people having sex in the bathroom, but I was really young at that point. I think I was only 19 when I went to Crisco Disco for the first time. So I was too timid when I I think I went in the bathroom to pee and I couldn't even pee because like the guys next to me were doing things with each other. And, uh, you know, it scared me. So I ran out. But uh, it was it was mostly dancing. I went to Crisco Disco one time, and there was a man, and he uh, fisted
2: this other guy, and he was a muscle queen, and he lifted the guy up with the hand inside of him and carried him around the club on, on in, in, inside of him. All right,
3: all right, all right. All right okay moving on moving on i googled that story because i was like that cannot be true or if it is true there must be some online record of it there was nothing <laughs> you're, you're so, accusing me of making this up for the podcast it could have been a special night you could have been on
0: some lovely enhancing thing <laughs> which i think everybody was on something at frisco because it didn't even open till 1 a.m or 2 a.m
1: I'm curious about what you were studying at at um, University of Pennsylvania, and why. Like, what 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 happened there? Like, did you finish? Did you get your diploma? Did you want to continue your academic career?
0: I did graduate. I am an Ivy League graduate, and I received a BA in French and Spanish literature. I, I speak both languages. Uh, Spanish is my native language and French. I used to speak quite fluently. I don't speak it so well now.
2: To get back to the clubs very quickly, you remember Diane and Michael and Anita and everybody. You remember that club scene, and um, you have said, "I." We both remember one of those those first nights seeing Michael aleg and Kioki when they were
0: busboy. When Michael was a busboy at Area. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember it just because. I recognized him from Danceteria because remember he used to do those, they weren't called hot body contests, they were called like bad boy nights or something else at Danceteria. Oh, he did the filthy mouth contest, I remember that. And so I remember seeing him there and then later on seeing him as a busboy at area, and then thinking, oh, well, you're not so cool. <laughs> Um, But then
2: you were one of the original tunnel kids, right? Um, Back in 87 is when you started going to the tunnel.
0: Yeah. I mean, at some point I found, I heard about like the, it was, I guess it was the celebrity club that was going on in the basement of the tunnel and I had heard about it. So I thought, Oh, let me go check it out. And at the time I was taking classes at fashion Institute of technology and ever so conveniently, I had a class that the night of celebrity club. So I was able to just, Stay at in class until ten o'clock or ten thirty, and then just walk a few blocks over to the tunnel. It was quite fun. Talk a little bit about the the early club kids
2: of the eighties versus what it sort of became in the nineties, because it was a very the different generations of club kids were very different from one another. Talk about a little bit about those early days.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, I remember when I first came to New York and like in 82 and 83, I mean, there was still kind of like some vestiges of new wave or punk rock. So you would see like all these, you know, hipstery cool kids that were kind of punked out. And I guess they were like the last of that crowd. And then there was the other category of people. There were all these like really fabulous, I guess you might call them either eurotrash or just like sleek people that would hang out at area, like the fashion model crowd. And I felt very intimidated around those people because I thought they were really fabulous and I didn't really know what they did. And since I had just moved to New York, I was still kind of insecure about being in New York. And I didn't know that, know many people in New York. Often I was, I didn't know anyone in the club, you know, I was, I would go by myself. So uh, there was that group of people. And then there were like the, I guess like the proto-Voguing queens or the Voguing queens who were some of the first people that I actually made friends with in the uh, club, especially at Palladium, uh, right after Palladium opened, I started going there and uh, there would be a, a bunch of voguing Queens there that I made friends with. So it was a bunch of different categories of people. And then you uh, were making your own outfits. That's right. You know, when I first moved to New York, I, wanted to dress up and I was wearing a lot of thrift store clothes that I found in the early eighties. As
2: as you all, everyone does in the beginning.
0: Yeah. Right. And, but you know, that can only get you so far, you know? And so then I started trying to make clothes and it was always a disaster. So I thought, well, let me try to learn how to make clothes. And I thought, and FITs in New York. And I thought, well, you know, I could probably learn there if I took classes and I did take the classes and I did learn. And your
2: first, that michael noticed was a hat what was it
0: (laughs) yeah well by then we had already become friends like uh, like you know club acquaintances i wouldn't say we were really good friends but uh, when he was hosting a party at the red zone i had uh, prior to that i had started experimenting with led lights and soldering guns (laughs) and i real i learned how to solder together led lights with wires and a nine volt battery and i figured out how to make a smile because that was the era of acid house house. yes so everything was about the smiley faces Uh (laughs) so i made a smiley face out of led lights and i wore that to the tunnel because i thought no one at the tunnel was going to have this and of course nobody did and michael saw it and loved it and he said oh i have to have a hat like that and then he paraded me around the club showing all his Mm -hmm. friends my hat, you know, and then I felt so special. And I thought, okay, I've got to make this guy a hat. And then from then on, we became pretty good friends.
2: And uh, he, you, you still had a day job at this point. What was the day job?
0: Yes, I had a number of day jobs. You know, it took me a really long time to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So when I moved to New York, I uh, just started working like these random, horrible office jobs. And I, I worked in a purchasing office where I was a purchasing agent for some computer company buying electronic chips. And I hated that. And then I ended up getting fired from that job. And then I got hired at another uh, purchasing office where I was buying uh, supplies for these oil tankers, you know, because they would have they would, you know, basically had all the food that they needed on the ship for the workers. So I was working, like helping to buy all that crap. It was awful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but Michael realized
2: that you had a day job and that you had money, and that's when he invited you to go to on a trip to europe and It was probably it was the it was the when the Berlin wall fell right you were in Germany when the the wall fell
0: yes you know I didn't make a lot of money when i in the mid to late eighties, but I made enough money that I could pay rent and that I could take vacations and prior to that trip with michael i had uh, I had met some German guy from Berlin in New York. I think it was at the Pyramid Club. And we hooked up a a few times and we became friends. So he invited me to Germany. And I think I went to Germany once or twice before that trip to Michael. And then Michael said he wanted to go to Berlin. And I said, oh, well, I have this friend in Berlin. He'll let us stay at his house if if you want to go. And I was probably one of the only people he knew that had enough money to go on vacation. So we went and just by sheer stupidity and dumb luck, the Berlin Wall fell that week. In fact, it fell the night we were coming out of a club. <laughs> well, because I, I
2: remember seeing the Berlin Wall fall and thinking, oh, my God, Michael's there. And then the subsequent stories of the, the East German boys that you met as they were coming over the wall. I know that we, we had met and that we had seen each other, but I think the first time that you were on my radar really was when we were both on the Joan Rivers show with Lee Bowery and Michael and Amanda Lepore and you, and it was the first time that it sort of clicked in my head that you were important enough to Michael that he was starting to invite you on to talk shows and to parade you around and have parties for you, and that you were designing for him everything. And that was the first time that I ever really thought, oh, uh, I, you know, Ernie is someone that's that's rising up in the scene.
0: That's correct. Uh, I think that we had we had our. Already- already known each other socially from the clubs in the late 80s and uh but yeah like I think it was when I moved in with Michael and Kiyoki in the summer of 1990 that's when we really started having conversations and got to know each other because then of course you would come over to that apartment on 30th street and you'd either come over for dinners or whatever and that's how we got to know each other.
2: He really um promoted you and and you you were loyal to him talk a little bit about that
0: the yeah I mean I was I mean I you know Michael was a very could be a very difficult friend he was a very unreliable friend but uh what I do have to say about him that when we became friends after we were traveling and we started hanging out more that we had a lot in common we had the similar senses of humor we had similar experiences when we were young and uh we laughed about the same thing. It was, uh, he really liked what I did. He got me, you know, and uh, he loved the the clothes that I made for myself and eventually asked me to start making clothes for him. And uh, w- one of the things that I really appreciated about him is that once he decided that he l- liked what I was doing and what I was about, he started hiring me at his parties. And And literally for like a f- five-year period, he was my biggest fan. He would hire me to appear and or dan- go-go dance or bartend at his parties. Like whatever kind of job he could make up for me to do, he would do that. And and that lasted a really long time. And I really appreciate it because when you move to New York, you don't necessarily know anybody. And uh, even less so, it's like, it's even less likely that you're gonna know somebody that has like a position of power, people that can open doors for you. and. And certainly, they might not open doors for you unless you like have sex with them. But I never had to do that with Michael. He just genuinely appreciated and loved me and and supported me. And so, you know, over the years, I really felt um, gratitude. Not like he ever expected me to pay him back or anything like that. But you know, when he got out of prison, I definitely felt a a, a responsibility to help him. You know, because he really helped me a lot over the years.
2: He wasn't known for being Loyal to his friends, really, or uh, reliable. But I think to you, he was. And I think uh, that there was a particular bond between the two
0: of you. There was a bond. And, you know, my opinion seemed very important to him. And it seemed very important to him in the past because, I mean, eventually he hired me to work at Project X. And I was basically his representative at Project X during the daytime while the magazine was up and running. And uh, but even at the end, I could tell that my opinion was very important to him because um, just a few months before he died, when he moved to that apartment in upper Manhattan, where he passed away, he repeatedly emailed and text messaged me asking me to come to his apartment. And he uh, was telling me about the apartment. And I could tell that he really wanted me to come see the apartment to show it off to me, to show me that he had overcome the previous situation where he was basically living in a crack den in mass Queens. And, uh, so even up to the end, it was important to him that I come and give an opinion and that I approve of, you know, what he was doing. And so, yeah, my opinion meant a lot to him.
2: Um, Most people think of Michael as sort of the unhinged drug addict of his later years, but in the eighties, in that pre disco 2000 era, probably he didn't, do a lot of drugs, and I think it was about being a host, and it was about being the life of the party, and, uh, you know, he was there to to get people going, and that sort of gets lost in the Michael Eilig story, and I remember very specifically how angry he was with Kiyoki and I for doing coke, and how he would find the coke, and he would flush it down the toilet, and he was really anti-drug, and then... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hold on. And then there was sort of a slippery slope where he discovered ecstasy and started doing ecstasy punches at clubs and maybe talk a little bit about how that, that slide happened. How, how, what, how you noticed it happening.
0: It was, it, it was very gradual, I would say, because, you know, the ecstasy and all that, I mean, that was kind of the late eighties. And I mean, we were all taking ecstasy and it was fun. And, but you're right. Like I remember talking, hanging out with Michael in the late eighties, and he might be drinking a wine spritzer, you know, which (laughs) is like the lightest thing that you could possibly have (laughs) at at a nightclub. And, uh, but, but yes, I mean, once, uh, once fast forward to like the early nineties, people were constantly offering us drugs um, because there were a lot of drugs in the clubs. And if you don't have to pay for it, uh, it's very easy to say yes. And then the whole uh, grind of just like week after week, month after month, having to go out, even when you don't really want
2: to go out. Doing after hours parties and after after hours parties, and then having to get up to be at the office the next day and have a meeting with, you know, Peter or Rudolph or whoever, Maurice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, people think yeah people think that we were just partying all the time. But the reality, especially like in the early years of Disco 2000, when we arrived at the limelight, uh, I would say from like ni- the summer of 1990 to like, 1992 i mean we were literally working 14 hour days i mean we would go to limelight at noon and we would be there from noon until seven o'clock at night and then we would rush home have dinner try to take a little nap then spend a couple of hours having to get ready in order to be back at the club by 10 30 or 11. And then we would be at the club until five o'clock in the morning. And
2: then you, and then we also were doing twilight zone. We were also doing, you know, numbers and all these after hours places, lotto. And then uh, on top of that, you were also doing project X magazine and you're also doing, you know, outlaw parties and this and that. And there was just, there was so much going on. And I, Wanted to sort of say, I don't know how far you want to go into this, but um, I mean, you had sort of a dark period starting in 91, 92 yourself.
0: Yes, I would say I could talk about it. I would say that my really dark period started at the end of or in the actually in the middle of 93 or no, actually prior to that, maybe like the end of 92, where, you know, because we Michael Kiyoki and I lived together and we were just like getting high all the time and doing drugs and uh and at the, around the beginning of 93 that's when i guess michael's drug habit had become really bad but i never noticed that his drug habit was bad because my drug habit was bad and i guess when you your drug habit is just as bad as your friends you don't really notice that it's bad there's certainly no judgment happening if if yeah right right because you're too high to judge yeah. or to even notice I didn't notice Michael's uh, increasingly bad drug use because I was having an increasingly bad drug use. He was doing whatever he was doing with heroin and I was doing what I was doing with crystal meth. And it was I was just kind of oblivious to it
2: uh were you guys still living in the condo together and this was like ninety three ninety four right and were you still living together, and were you still friends or were you still i mean you were still working together but but were you the, I, heroin and meth are very different
0: highs yeah uh we were friends but the thing is that we were having a lot of arguments and disagreements and uh you know crystal meth makes you very paranoid so Uh, living with Michael and all the chaos would just drive me crazy. And, you know, so we would have a lot of arguments about that. And finally, like the arguing and my unhappiness with being in a chaotic household culminated in the summer of 93 when I moved out. Although I I still stayed friends with Michael and Yuki, I just couldn't live with them anymore. And plus I wanted to kick the habit. I didn't want to be getting high, but it took me like a full another year to stop getting
2: high i remember that um i would go and visit and you didn't come out of your room for about two years i remember they they, we would just hear like a little shuffling in the other room and we'd be like that's ernie but he doesn't he's like a closet person
0: he doesn't come out anymore but i i mean i did go out because like i was still working at disco 2000 every wednesday and i i would dress up but you know there were times that i yeah i was just behaving erratically myself
2: This is when I was living in South Beach. So I remember there was about 2 years there where I didn't see Michael and I didn't see you or or anybody. And then when I came back, the club scene had completely changed and it was much darker and much druggier and the the drugs had changed from ecstasy to everyone was sort of doing heroin and meth and the the blue pills, what were those? The um Klonopin. Oh. Okay. Everyone was on, on the uh, the blue pills that everyone was doing.
3: I'm dying to know, like, what do you think, Ernie triggered that change? Yeah. Triggered that change in Michael, number one. And then I guess, number two, why the scene became so dark? Because my recollection of the club kids initially was such a kind of kooky, surreal, dada. It was all about unseriousness. And so I'm just curious at how it, how it became something else
0: i mean i think that the disco 2000 scene became dark uh there were other scenes like you know the club Kids scene at the at the makeup room at the world that you know the party that peter a and rain voltaire uh used to do like that party wasn't dark you know and that was full of club kids webster hall yeah so it was it it had more to do with michael's party than it had to do with the club kids becoming dark and then like the immediate circle around michael becoming dark uh because you know i got dark and then you know when by the time i kicked the habit in 94 in the middle of 94 you know i stopped being dark and i was able to go out again and i mean not to the degree that i went out previously but uh you know i was no longer dark and i didn't see you know necessarily see the darkness everywhere I, I only saw it at disco 2000 actually
2: i wonder if some of that
0: too isn't
2: just the difference between the 80s and the 90s and by that point in the 90s things were deconstruction it was about grunge it was about um the things that just the music had gotten darker and the fashion had gotten darker and i wonder if every if that sort of fed in a way you know things got druggier and there was you know heroin chic and all of that And I'm I'm wondering if all of that fed into the club scene and the club scene fed it. It was sort of a push me, pull me type thing.
0: Probably. I mean, there was like a level of permissiveness in uh, the clubs or at least in some of the clubs where you could just do whatever you want. And I guess if you're allowed to do whatever you want for too long, a period of time, it's going to lead to a dark place.
1: You know, you talked about Michael and his wine spritzers And now here we are, and Disco 2000 seems to be this place of darkness, and Michael's at the center of it in many ways. Knowing Michael as well as you did, do you have any idea of what sort of drove him to that place?
0: Yeah, I do. I do have ideas of what drove him there. Uh, You know, he was the type of person that uh, was always looking for something to to fill an emptiness and, and that and pain or that he had inside of him and you know when he when he started out and when I first became friends with him in the 80s i i believe that 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 hunger or desire to fill an emptiness is what propelled him to become a successful nightclub promoter he had like this drive to succeed because maybe he thought once he became you know a celebrated nightclub promoter everything would be great or once he had a lot of money everything would be great or once he became really popular and all these like young cute guys wanted to have sex with him then everything would be great and uh, one by one he would achieve these goals that he set for himself but then he realized after achieving these goals that it's st- he still felt empty inside that he wasn't satisfied and And I feel that 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 pain and uh, his inability to to quench uh, a thirst or a desire or an emptiness inside of him is what drove him to this darkness. Because then it was the drugs, you know, and and then maybe if I just take these this combination of drugs, I'm going to feel great and it's going to be the cure for whatever I'm feeling. And that that was his great downfall.
3: But we all have that hole, don't we? I
0: mean, I, I'm a giant void. (laughs) It's like, I mean, I'm laughing about it, but it's. We all have it. And I think the, you know, part of like a successful journey in life is being able to allow that void or that emptiness to drive you to achieve great things or to create art or to entertain people, but not let it drive you to your death, you know, like that you're. You are using it as a motivation, but that you're not allowing it to be, you know, it's almost like the moth and the flame that, you know, the, the moth is using it as a guide and getting closer to it, but you don't get cl- so close to it that you burn up and die. So uh, there is a yin to that and a yang and a positive and a negative. And he was just consumed by the negative.
3: Can I ask two more questions, which is one, what did you think of James St. James? Like what <laughs> I want to, as if speak about him as if he wasn't here
0: <laughs> well i remember i remember seeing james at clubs like area and palladium like this was before the club kids this was like 1985 and you know he was always like jumping around like hopping and he would wear his hair and these these pigtails like pippi longstocking and i i don't know if it was that he was really like tweaked out on cocaine or he was just like naturally exuberant to that point that he was just like, I think at this point there was no Coke. I I think that it was, that does
2: seem to be a late motif here is that I'm always bouncing up and down. Diane
0: Brill described him as bouncy three times in our conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So he was like that and always like running around, like talking to all these people. And, you know, you were always like talking to these beautiful people and, you know, you had all these girls with you and, uh, so he seemed like the life of the party and, uh, and he was one of those types of people that I probably, that I didn't want to like go up to and try to talk to because it's like, oh, you know, he must be a VIP or, um, you know, one of the celebrities here. Like, so uh, I better just like not talk to him.
2: <laughs> I think I mentioned with Diane too, that it, it was obviously a fake it till you make it scenario where I was probably just as intimidated by everybody, but I overcompensated
0: by being loud and bouncy. <laughs> Yeah, well, I had I hadn't learned that trick. I learned how to be visually loud, but I hadn't l- learned how to be vocally loud.
3: I mean, James had this great ability just to bounce up to you and set you at ease. Like, I, <laughs> it's, it was such a gift and and so amazing. The the other thing, Ernie, I have to say to you though is, you've always been my favorite club kid character because. I just have a soft spot for Clara the Chicken. I just-
0: <laughs> Thank you.
3: Clara the Chicken was given
2: birth, was, was, came out of her egg uh, on the opening night of Disco 2000 when there was uh, I See the Bear, uh, Clara the Chicken, there was uh, Hans Ulrich, the dog. He was a leather dog. And Michael had just went and gotten all these um, costumes from a costume shop and given and sort of christened everybody's name.
0: And Clara was the one that really took off, we got to say. Well, you know, I was really... Uh, I always believed in being committed to what you do. So for me, uh, when Michael hired me to be Clara the Chicken, I decided that this was going to be my drag per- persona because I kind of used to go to this club called Boy Bar on St. Mark's Place in um, the East Village. And I would go there every Thursday to watch the drag shows. And they were really fun, as as were the drag shows at Whispers on Sunday night at Pyramid Club. I'm um, happy you're gay. And I kind of wanted to do that, but I didn't really want to be a drag queen. So when Michael presented me with this concept of wearing the chicken suit I thought okay here's my opportunity to do a type of cartoon drag where I'm not where I'm still playing a female character but I'm not really having to wear women's clothes and I embraced it and I stuck with it and even as hellish as it was because I think at times you wore the suit one of the suits James. They were so smelly they got so sweaty oh yeah they were horrible (laughs) but like I but I just felt like it was it had to be I had to be committed to the performance and to the art of it, which is why I did it for three years. You know, it's not like I was desperate for the money. Uh, I just wanted it to be something fabulous. And and it ended up being fabulous. I think I still have my copy of Dizzy Chicken
2: somewhere. The the (laughs) Kiyoki song, the 45 record that he did. Should we sort of segue into Angel here?
3: You know, when we made the documentary and then the movie, you know, a lot of criticism has been leveled at both of those for sort of, I don't know if objectifying is the right word, but not really for, for giving Michael pride of place as opposed to giving Angel pride of place. I'd love to hear your thoughts and impressions about Angel as a, as a person, because I feel that, you know, the feeling is that the narrative has sort of left
0: him out. Well, I actually knew Angel. I think I first met him in the late 1980s. So I had known him a long time, even before he came into the club kid scene. In the late 80s, I used to also go to the goth and industrial music parties that happened in New York City. And Angel was part of that scene. So uh, I remember going with this friend of mine named Jamie, and he introduced me to Angel. And you know, he still kind of looked the same. I think he had a mohawk at the time or I don't know what he had, but I I remember meeting him and thinking he was cute. And, uh, you know, he was very quiet and not like the angel that we knew at Disco 2000, who was kind of loud and brash. And, uh, you know, I thought he was sweet. And I actually, uh, at one point, you know, even had like a romantic relationship with him. I don't think I knew that I I got to know him in ways that, you know, you know, he was not presented in the documentary or in the film. Uh, But what I can say about Angel is that I felt that he was also um, like a lost soul that he didn't necessarily have, um, you know, an idea of what he wanted to do or where he wanted to go. And he was looking for a place to fit in. I know that when I, at one point, uh, when I met him, when I met him in the, I guess it was '87 or '88, he was active with the this group called Glini at the Gay and Lesbian Center. It's like Gay and Lesbian Youth of New York, and uh, so he, you know, he seemed to be happy in that. And then he, at some point, started coming to the the club kid parties. I don't remember when he started coming to Disco 2000, but you know, there there he was, and uh, I mean, I was happy to see him there. And, uh, you know, he had this hunger to be accepted. And I felt like a lot of people did accept him. I mean, I accepted him as a friend and I knew lots of other people who considered him a friend. So he wasn't, you know, Michael said terrible things about Angel. And uh, and the things that Michael said were not true. You know, he was he was like a lot of club kids. He was this alienated, young man who was looking for a community. And he was hoping to find that in the club kids. And to some degree he did find it, but he also got mixed up in drug dealing and in all this negativity and it, you know, and it led to his death, unfortunately. I remember
2: Angel um, was able to straddle the, the Disco 2000 scene and the Webster Hall scene uh he was he sort of went back and forth a little bit in both um and i don't think that i really ever got to know him that well um all i ever saw was that sort of brash personality that that you talk about but um it is it's it's interesting to hear
0: the different sides of him i mean he definitely had um a violent side to him because uh, you know when when i heard about what happened between him and freeze and Michael, I wasn't surprised that it started with, you know, either angel pushing Michael into a cabinet because there, you know, angel was capable of acting out when he was angry or if he perceived that somebody was dissing him. I, and I'll give you an example. Like once he, uh, I I can't remember what, where I was, but I was coming home and it was probably like three or four o'clock in the morning. And I had just pulled up in a taxi to our house on 30th street and Angel was standing in front of our building and the whole glass facade of the building was shattered. And there was a New York city garbage can that he had pulled from the corner of the street and thrown through the glass window. And I asked him, you know, well, why did you do that? And then, and his response was that, well, I was ringing a doorbell and I thought you guys were up there and not letting me in and laughing at me. So you know, I got mad and broke the window. So, you know, it was kind of like, that's when I realized that he was capable of just like crazy things.
2: Um, I do remember that the week before uh, his death, that he and Michael had gotten into a fight then. And that's when in the documentary, you see Michael at the honey trap and he's got that giant uh, uh, hole, like he's got a giant like um, sore on the back of his neck of giant like, um, you know, where they had, beating each other. And I remember saying to Angel, uh, I called and Angel picked up the phone and I said, Angel, you've got to get out of there. You can't be staying with Michael. You guys are, are, you know, you're, you're arguing all the time. You're fighting all the time. You've got to get out of there. And I think that was the last conversation I had with him.
0: Yeah. I don't think I spoke to him like in the final year or two years of his life, because when, when I went sober in the middle of 94 it kind of required me to step back a little bit from nightclubs and certainly i wasn't going to hang out with angel you know who was dealing drugs and had all these just because i was trying to avoid that and even when i would go to disco 2000 i mean michael was very unsupportive and would come like offering me drinks and then you know like sneaking drugs into the drinks or trying to like shove coke up my nose and uh you know just uh, you know that that's what he did and uh at times it was funny, other times it was annoying. And uh, so I didn't go to Disco 2000 that often.
2: Once Michael was in prison, did you visit him in prison? Did you talk to him? What? what how was that, the 17 years?
0: Uh, I I visited him when he was in Coxsackie, uh, maybe once or twice. Uh, and Coxsackie is the, probably one of the closest locations that he was to New York City. So I drove there and visited him and, but like mostly I wrote him letters and I can't remember if he wrote me first or I wrote to him first, but at some point, you know, like either he wrote me or I wrote to him and, uh, you know, because I just had all these questions like, you know, why did you do this? And, uh, and, you know, so we had like a a long, we had a number of exchanges of letters. I mean, I saved a lot of his letters. I haven't read them uh, recently, but you know, he kind of explained his side of it. And uh, we ended up reconciling because a lot of our uh, estrangement was due to drugs and to like fighting and then hurt feelings, you know. And we were able to patch a lot of those hurt feelings up through the exchange of letters. And we were, until it got to the point that I could actually go visit him. And, you know, by the time he was ready to be released from prison. I had essentially forgiven him for what he did. I mean, you know, when I say I forgave him, you know, I forgave him for, you know, hurting me and for hurting Angel and for the horrible thing that he did, Uh, you know, but, you know, I was trying to make it clear that I wasn't excusing it. I was just trying to give him a second chance because I believed in forgiveness. So that's what I was trying to practice estrangement was due to drugs and to like fighting and then hurt feelings, you know. And we were able to patch a lot of those hurt feelings up through the exchange of letters. And we were until I got to the point that I could actually go visit him. And you know, by the time he was ready to be released from prison, I had essentially forgiven him for what he did. I mean, you know, when I say I forgave him, you know, I forgave him for you know, hurting me and for hurting Angel and for the horrible thing that he did, Uh, you know, but, you know, I was trying to make it clear that I wasn't excusing it. I was just trying to give him a second chance because I believed in forgiveness. So that's what I was trying to practice.
1: When he got out of prison, did you feel that um, he was rehabilitated?
0: Yes, I felt that he was rehabilitated. Uh, somewhat like he seemed somewhat normal to me in the couple of years before he got out of prison, just based on his letters. And then also when he came out and came to stay with me for the first few months, he was pretty normal. And, uh, and it wasn't until I would say it wasn't until uh, maybe eight or nine months after he was released that he was living with me, that he started going crazy again you know i i think he's at some point he started going back to drugs i mean there were times that people came over and you know maybe they offered him coke or you know what while we were drinking and you know i was the type of person or i am the type of person that i can drink and do a bump of coke and it's okay it's not like i'm going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it for days and days and days that was not michael and no so i guess it wasn't michael And uh, and eventually he went back to, you know, getting high. And I think, you know, he didn't uh, he he wasn't willing to like look for a job while he lived with me. So he had all this free time. And I think that having all that free time was a really negative uh, influence on him. If he had been working to survive, I think he might have been too tired to be looking for drugs or to be, you know, trying to seek out all these negative influences, I talked to him about that so many times about
2: the need to have structure in your life and when you have structure in your life then uh if you have someplace you have to be every morning if you you know you you need to be in bed at a certain time if you are getting a a paycheck that comes in every week and you can pay your bills and everything like that 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 gives you the opportunity to jump off and be creative later you know at, at other times and michael never believed in that michael always thought that if
0: he had a nine to five that that would stifle any creativity that he had Well, yes, he was very, you know, he had a very hot, big sense of entitlement. And I guess that goes back to, you know, the drug addiction, because a lot of drug addicts have exaggerated senses of entitlement. And for him, working a full-time job or working like some mundane job was a humiliation. And I kept, I mean, my philosophy that, that I would explain to him was that all work had dignity. So if you just do your job with You're with pride, it doesn't matter what you're doing, even if you're working in McDonald's, um, you don't have to be ashamed of that. There's no shame in it. But he didn't see it that way. To him, it would have been a humiliation. And I I think that stemmed from this sense of entitlement that everything should just come to him, that he should be given all these high-paying jobs, but not have to really do any work in exchange for the high pay. Um, Another thing that I would
2: always tell him is that he needed to... Um, not just in the, the the court of public opinion, but he needed for himself to do something to give back to the community and to try and, and do some sort of charity work or some sort of, you know, if if he helped other people that that would help himself. And um, he, he
0: fought that as well. He did. You know, there were times that I actually I volunteered to do things and I would say, hey, why don't you come with me and vol- let's do some volunteer work like I would volunteer at a food pantry where you're like packing groceries for people that don't have enough food or going to the park on a cleanup day and picking up garbage in the park. And, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff happens on a Saturday morning at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning. And there was no way that I could get him to wake up and get dressed and come with me to do that on a Saturday because his thing was to stay up all night, like on the internet and not wake up until noon or one o'clock. And, uh, you know, which, okay, if, if that's what you're going to do, you know, you should still actually do something pro- productive, but he never did. Like he, he had no structure in his life. So, you know, he, co- he called himself a painter, but he never painted. And in fact, it, it seemed to me like he didn't even enjoy painting. So, um, you know, there was even the things that he professed to love or to want to be, he didn't seem to enjoy it or even want to do it.
3: You know, I I want to just skip back a little bit to when he was in prison because I visited him a few times too and I got the impression, I thought that his greatest jeopardy would be when he was in prison. And yet, in a way he seemed to survive and and more than survive he seemed to thrive. Well, I but I think that that's one of those things where he had structure in prison and I think he, you know,
0: that that's that, that he you know thrived under under structure. Yes, well there is some sort of structure in prison and I think that it prevented him from going off the deep end and when he came out of prison he he must have I know besides his personality disorder he clearly from my observation suffered from some type of adult attention deficit disorder, because he seemed incapable of focusing on tasks and projects. And uh, it was virtually impossible for him to get anything done. And uh, even though he had all the time in the world, you know, but he was just, uh, he was like, he was, he reminded me of children that I used to learning disabled children that I used to read to in in public schools as as a volunteer job that I had where they they couldn't focus on one sentence in their reading because they were constantly distracted by noises because they had attention deficit disorder and Michael was very much like that you know he couldn't he couldn't get anything done he couldn't focus and so leaving prison took away the structure
2: was that the drugs or do you think there was an undiagnosed ADHD or OCD or learning disability
0: well, it was probably uh it yeah it was probably a combination of the two, you know because he was always self medicating and so maybe he was hung over and un- unable to focus, and then at the same time he had trouble in general focusing because i mean i don't you probably didn't have enough interaction with him, but on a daily basis that you know for sixteen months, I could see how he was very incapable of getting a lot of things done, unless it was something that he really, like if it was, if it involved sex, he could get that done uh, because he could find hookups. If it involved drugs, he could get that accomplished because he wanted to get high. But if it involved, you know, doing tasks or going to the post office because you, you're running a side business and you've sold merchandise and you have to send it to the post office, it would take him days or weeks to mail things, you know?
2: Randy, I think you can speak to that where I think you bought some paintings from him, and it took him three years to give you to send you two paintings he
1: did send them though
2: well, there you go <laughs> but it did it was years it was years. I remember every time
0: you talked to him he'd say i 've got to get randy 's paintings to him i've got and he did that for literal years <laughs> it w- It was very sad to watch actually, and frustrating and You know, I mean, at at one point, I just couldn't take it. I mean, when I finally asked him to move out, it was, you know, I just thought he was spinning his wheels. He wasn't really accomplishing anything. He was behaving like a junkie in my house. And I didn't, I couldn't tolerate it. So, uh, so again, like the drug use created another barrier between us. It's
1: weird because I remember when he got out having a conversation, I, I forget how long it was. He was still under parole. And I remember him saying, I can't, At such and such a date, my parole is over and then I can do drugs. Like, I do remember he seemed to be counting the days down for that. and I And I just remember thinking in that moment, like, I just didn't, it didn't feel like this was going to end well, or it just, I, I just didn't
2: understand how he could think. He had been given this gift of of being released from prison yeah. and he wasn't using it. He, he was, he was actually working against it.
1: And also there had been times in the past where i I sort of felt like he sometimes was blaming drugs on what had happened. And so having gone through that, it just felt like You know, that's the last thing after going through this and then, you know, having a second chance. It just really seemed like the last thing, you know, that that he should be doing. But I guess also he was totally lost at that point, really.
2: Ernie, we have talked about um, how you and I interacted differently with him at that point because you saw him on a day to day basis and... When I saw him, he was putting on a show for me and I never really got to see the pain and the heartache because he was so busy doing the Michael Alick show and trying to show me how happy he was. But you saw it in him and you saw the pain um, uh, in those final years, especially when you guys were doing The Pew.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, when he lived with me, there were times that he would just break down in in tears because you know, it was very difficult for him coming out of prison and readjusting, you know, it was, it was like being Rip Van Winkle and waking up. And all of a sudden there's the internet and all this technology and you have no idea how to use any of it. And everybody's kind of moved on to other things. And um, so there was that sadness, but then, you know, once I asked him to leave and he went off on his own and as he descended more into drugs, that's when I could really see the, the anguish. I mean, I would come to wherever he was living and I would spend you know, however many hours it was th- that I was spending, you know, to do our show. And, you know, he was trying to do the Michael Alec show for me, too. But I mean, I could see the the sadness and the anguish in his face. I mean, I sent you that photograph that I took of him in 2019. You know, he I often saw his face contorted in, you know, in anguish and sadness, but at the same time trying to do the Michael Alec show and uh it was very painful for me to watch it actually and over the course of time i spent less and less time with him because one you know he was just getting worse and especially when he was living in queens which was in i guess 2018 2019 you know he was practically living in a crack den it was just i i didn't feel safe there and um and it was very sad to see how he was declining
2: you know, it's it's funny, though, because Mike, I always felt that, you know, it, from 1987 on every single night, he ended up in tears in a nightclub corner somewhere with this surrounded by a gaggle of girls. And he was crying and saying he was going to kill himself. And everybody would say, oh, my God, Michael's going to kill himself. And Michael's dying. And Michael was always dying. And I felt that it was performative in a way. And I think that in those final years, I had hardened my heart to. That
0: performance of his? It was performative and it was manipulative. Yes. And uh, it was attention shifting, but it was also going back to that emptiness, that void that he had inside of him. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the night, you know, even maybe he would host some fabulous party, and at the end of the night, he would be in tears because no matter how great it was, it wasn't, it didn't give him the satisfaction that he believed that he was going to get from it. And then at the end, it left him feeling em- just as empty as he felt, you know, before it happened. And that's where I think that's where the tears came from.
1: You were a very good friend of the, to him. I, I think it's really admirable that you you were there and, and and you know, tried to help him after he got out. I think that's, you know, knowing the history and just having that open mind. I mean, he was lucky to have Such a good friend.
0: Thank you. Well, you know, I I truly loved him and I wanted him to see how, you know, I had, you know, moved on in my life. I, I don't want to say I moved on because it's not like I stopped dressing up or stopped going out because I still do that. But I wanted him to see how you could incorporate that aspect of your past into a present where you're a professional working person and you are married, and you have, you know, an extended family, and all these responsibilities. And that it's, it doesn't mean that, you know, you're old, it doesn't mean that you're a has been, it just means that you're in a different phase of your life. And that's what I really wanted to show him when he got out of prison, in order to help him transition into something similar to that, where he could be happy. And it just didn't work out that way.
3: I could talk to you for hours. I think I think you 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 bring so much wisdom to it and I think that the pew you recorded after Michael's death on Christmas Day was so uh it was just so great because I was just personally just completely tongue-tied in to know how to react or express that and what you said expressed so much of what I think many people who loved Michael felt.
2: Right. Maybe just sort of tell us, uh, walk us through what you felt at that time and and how you expressed it on the pube.
0: Well, I I hate to say it, but I mean, I was really dreading that this was going to happen to Michael, that one day I would wake up and find and somebody would text me that he was dead. And uh, and that's exactly what happened. And uh, on Christmas Day and which was my father's 91st birthday. So, you know, I woke up and I got that text And, you know, so then I had all of those emotions and then on top of it had to suppress all of those emotions because we were having a birthday party for my father during COVID. So we were trying to, you know, have some kind of happy Christmas birthday celebration. And uh, I knew I had to say something about Michael because obviously I was very close to him. He was my co-host for the show for years. And uh, I wanted to deliver a message while, while I was still feeling all of the emotions. And I think I recorded that message maybe the day after Christmas or two days after Christmas. So it was just very fresh after Michael had died. I still hadn't really allowed the emotions to come out of me, uh, because, you know, there were a lot of emotions. It wasn't just sadness. It was anger. It was resentment and frustration and um, the, the, the anger that he did it on on Christmas Day when it,
2: which is a day of celebration and a day of joy, and he did it to take away, to to, to shift attention a shift as he always does.
0: Well, maybe he did it for that reason. You know, a lot of a lot of people commit suicide or die on accidentally from overdoses on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. It's it's a big day for that. So I understood. Why it happened on that day, and I, I don't want to assign motives to him. No,
1: but, I. But you know, no. I'm sorry. It, I, I was yeah. very,
0: you know, I was very hurt by it, mm. and uh, and angry, and and sad. You know, so I mean, I basically just wrote down notes on a piece of paper while I was experiencing all these very powerful emotions, and then I sat down in front of a video camera, of my phone, and and recorded it in one take. You know, I just kind of allowed the emotion. To come out without like me breaking down into tears, I used the power of the emotion to just deliver what I thought would have been a a funeral eulogy for him, Uh, you know, because he never really did have a funeral. And and I was able to do it in one take. I mean, I was very propelled by all this maelstrom of emotions. Ernie, yeah,
3: I think we have to we have to leave it there, but that was so beautifully said and and thank you so much for speaking to us. And I think, James, we have to have Ernie, we have to do another night fever with Ernie because there's so much more to explore and your perspective yeah. is so it's so um sober and insightful about the whole club period. You know, it'd be lovely to talk to you more. I wish we didn't have to. Yeah, contain- I wish we could
0: talk more about the joy of it.
3: We will. We will do a joy, a special joy. Night Fever, the joy episode. We will do that. If you and, would be so hoping, kind, that would be great. I'm hoping that, that as COVID
2: starts to end a little bit, that um, I can come out to New York and maybe we could spend some time together and, and we can talk about it there and together in person. That would be delightful. Yes, I do. I love you, Ernie. I'm, I'm so glad we were able to talk.
0: I love all of you guys. Uh, thank you for having me on. Great to see you. You know All the best. Likewise, I'm, I'm so glad, happy for all of you and your success.
3: And I'm so glad you still have hair cuz there's three bald men here.
0: Yes. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and that you're the only one not wearing glasses. <laughs> I've got I've got them right here but I only need them for reading. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, thank you. I love you. Bye. Thank you, Ernie Glam. Bye.
2: Take care. Money, success. If you or someone you know is experiencing depression or having suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Help is available 24 hours a day, 800-273-8255.